All right, guys and gals, hey, thanks so much to the worship band. Appreciate you guys and love you and grateful for helping us worship the Lord this morning. I hope uh, you'll take some time, guys, to thank them at some point, to uh, make a point of uh, thanking them for helping us that way. I've got some real truths real quicks. However you say that here, if you have uh, Bible questions, question about God, something that I might be able to take a stab at, you're welcome to put a question in the box back there. Um, and so I'll try to go through these. The thing about real truth real quick is that uh, I get, it's hard for me to keep these real quick. And so uh, somebody cut me short if I'm going way too long on just one of them. Um, hey, quick question. How do you know that God answers our prayers? And uh, thank you for that question, and I would direct you to uh, a place in the Bible, Luke chapter 11, verses 5 through 13, where Jesus tells a story, he's teaching about prayer, and Jesus said, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me, my door is shut now and my children are with me in bed, I cannot get up and give you anything. Well, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, so now this is Jesus telling his disciples and telling you and me. He says, now I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And so in that passage, guys and gals, Jesus is teaching us that God is your Heavenly Father. If you've put your faith in Jesus and you're walking as his child, God is your Heavenly Father. And just like a good dad on earth loves to bless his children with good things, um, how much more then will God, who is perfectly good, love to hear and answer the prayers of his, of his people? Uh, and, of course, the answer is infinitely more. God loves you and loves me uh, as a heavenly father far more than we can possibly imagine. And so uh, the Bible assures us he hears our prayers and he answers them according to his will and what he knows is best. And so I would encourage you to think about that on that particular question. I thank you for it. Um, here's a, an excellent kind of two-part question. What was the light on day one of creation? And then how did the population grow when there was only Adam and Eve? And uh, for those of you who um, remember Genesis chapter 1 and the creation account, this is a very astute question. Um, maybe you've noticed when you've read Genesis 1 or you've thought about God's creation of the world there, uh, it says in verse 3, God said, let there be light and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Uh, straightforward enough, until you realize that God doesn't create the sun itself, which, you know, we understand is our source of light. He doesn't create, doesn't create the sun until later down in verse 14, until uh, the fourth day of creation. And so that raises some interesting questions. Well, then what, was, what, what is that light, is, I assume, is what this question is getting at. And um, that's uh, not super easy to understand or answer, but, uh, you know, somebody might speculate that perhaps what's created there is the physical, material reality of light. You know, light as we understand it as a wave-particle duality. 
uh, or, or something like that, simply the material, you know, physical existence of light. But I think the text shows us something slightly different. Uh, the, the passage itself says, uh, God saw that the light was good, God separated the light from darkness. And then verse 5 says, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and morning the first day. So in other words, the text itself tells us that the light created here probably isn't the physical material stuff of light and its absence, darkness, but rather God's organizing the world into a timely system. God creating time, as it were. God creating a way for humans and all creation to distinguish between uh, distinguish between one point in time and another point in time, namely this passage of, of days or time. And so uh, that's, that's kind of what I would, would probably stake my money on, on that particular question, but uh, I'm certainly open to correction if that's not quite what's, uh, what's going on there. The second part of that question is, uh, how did the earth get populated if there was only Adam and Eve? And especially since you know probably that they cranked out three boys to begin with, uh, Cain and Abel and Seth. And so then, where, where does the rest of the population of the world come from? And uh, Christians and Jews and lots of folks have wondered about this for a long time. And this, the simple answer is uh, that the Bible just straight up doesn't tell us. Uh, it doesn't answer that question for us. And so we're left to speculate a little bit uh, about what happened. So some people speculate that perhaps Adam and Eve had tons and tons and tons of children, and God superintended uh, their relationships among themselves and that uh, among their, their children they populated the, the, the world before the flood. Um, and that's certainly one potential option. It seems a little bit strange that God might do it that way, but that's you know one of the ways we might speculate. Another thing is if we note in Genesis chapter 4 verse 17, it says after Cain kills Abel and God kind of drives him out of, out of his presence to sort of wander the earth, um, and yet under God's protection still. It says in verse 17, Cain uh, knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And when he had built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. And then other guys take wives and whatnot. And the Bible just straight up doesn't tell us where those wives came from, where the people for these cities came from. And so presumably either this is all the descendants of Adam and Eve's children, or uh, the Lord superintended creation of other human beings in other places throughout the ancient world. Uh, and I suppose either one is equally possible. We just don't know for sure. And it's uh, honestly probably not really that important because the point of Genesis 1 through 12 especially is that God has created human beings for a specific purpose, namely to display his glory and to know him as a loving father. And, uh, and, so, and he has ordered the world and the universe in such a way that uh, shows us his love and his care for us at all times. And so that's what I would want to emphasize is uh, the important thing there. Okay, I've got to make these a little real truth real quicker. Um, what, here's another question. What is the law? In other words, how do we know what law is being talked about when, um, when I'm yakking about the Bible up here? And this is a great question. I'm sorry, I should have been a little more clear on that from the get-go as we've talked about the law. But when the Bible talks about the law, it doesn't mean the law of the land or you know, the law of the United States or the law of North Dakota or South Dakota or something like that. In general, it means everything that God commands of humanity. So everything that God has said, called us to obey uh, throughout the Bible, we could summarize that as the law of God, what God asks us to do um, in obedience to him. But more specifically, sometimes we also mean by the law, we mean God's set of specific instructions to Israel 
that he gave to Moses at Mount Sinai. And maybe you remember in Exodus chapter 20, after God led the children of Israel out of Egypt and brought them into a promised land, before he brought them in, he gave them his law, which uh, people have counted to be 613 commands of the Mosaic law, we call it. And a lot, a lot of times in the New Testament, when it's referring to the law, that's the law specifically that it's referring to. Um, when I'm talking about the law up here, if I don't make it clear which of those two senses I'm talking about. In general, we could say both of those senses of the law are summarized in the Ten Commandments. And then Jesus, of course, further summarized them by saying that he himself was the end or the goal of the law. He was what the law was pointing to, the Old Testament law. And, uh, and he summarized it by saying, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second most important commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And that whoever obeys those has kept or fulfilled the whole law. And so Jesus um, brings it to even closer, more to a point. So I hope that helps a little bit on that one. Um, here's one that's uh, not necessarily a biblical question, but it is related to contemporary issues and how we apply our faith to them. Um, the question says, I believe that people should get to make their own choices about their bodies, but abortion is wrong because it's killing real babies. I think people that perform the abortions tell moms to get rid of it before it becomes a baby. But it is alive the whole time because God is there and he ordained it, right? And uh, I really do thank you for this, this thoughtful question. This is very important. One of the most pivotal issues that our society faces today, this question of abortion and the beginning of human life and whether or not it's right to take that life. Um, and I would answer it this way. The consensus of science, I'm not talking about the Bible right now. The consensus of science is, by, is almost overwhelming that life begins when a sperm fertilizes an egg. Namely, when a human being is conceived in the womb of its mother, uh, that's when its human life begins as a separate uh, organism, a separate being from, uh, from its mother and father. And so there's virtually no... Uh, there is some debate about that in scientific circles, but it hasn't been that way for the vast majority of human history. We've all, always understood that human life begins uh, at the conception of the, the baby or uh, the fetus in the womb of the mother. And um, the Bible, incidentally, agrees with that. It says in Psalm 139.13, uh, speaking to the Lord, it says, You formed my inward parts and you knitted me together in my mother's womb. It seems like there's an understanding there that God has superintended and, and, and created a new person even in the womb of its mother. Um, and so Christians and many others, not only Christians, but others who, who value the uh, human life at its very earliest stages have, uh, have tried to argue that abortion, which is the ending of a pregnancy by terminating the life of that unborn baby, uh, that abortion shouldn't, isn't right, that it shouldn't be legal as, as part of the law of the land, and that people should uh, find other ways to care and nurture for their babies uh, rather than ending their lives prematurely in the womb. Um, and, and somehow that's become a political issue, and uh, it engenders a lot of rage and anger on all sides of the issue, uh, it's, but it's a really important question. And the only thing I would add to this is, um, you know, the question said, those who perform abortions, you know, try to convince the mom that, to end their pregnancy before, uh, before it becomes a human life in their womb. Uh, and I would maybe take a little bit of issue with that and say, my sense as I read the, the temperature of our country and uh, that those who perform abortions really don't care 
about when life begins uh, in the womb or not. Uh, because most folks who are in the abortion industry think abortion should be legal from the very time of conception all the way up through the third trimester to the point where a baby might even be born viably. Might, like all the way up to the point just before it's born uh, because they're so uh, passionate for that particular system of thought. And so um, I, I find that really sad and uh, I, I hope that you would too. Uh, the last question I'll handle here this morning is, um, if God loves me, why am I alive? And it's hard to know the tone of this question. Uh, it sounds to me, though, whoever wrote that, it sounds to me like it's a, a quite a sad question. It sounds to me like um, you're going through something really, really hard. And uh, you're wondering how it could even be that there is a loving God if this is the sort of thing I have to go through. And I want you to know that um, I and everyone here uh, hurts with you and knows that that's an incredibly hard place to be and we're very sorry. And I want to assure you from the Bible that God does indeed love you even when your circumstances and your feelings all seem to indicate otherwise. Uh, and we know that because of what the Bible says about the character of God, that he never fails and that he will be with us always and that for those who love God and are, uh, have put their faith in Jesus, um, that uh, no matter what they go through, the Lord will always be with them. And I want to just read quickly for you this passage from Romans chapter 8, uh, verses 31 through 39. It says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so that's saying... Even though we have to go through tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, all kinds of awful things in this life. Guys and gals, uh, if you have put your faith in Jesus, you belong to God and nothing, life, death, nothing can separate you from his love. And so I just want to assure you of that truth this morning from God's word. All right, let's go uh, now to Galatians chapter 4. So go ahead and flip your Bibles open. We're going to be back in Galatians this morning as we look at another one of the amazing things that the Lord has uh, given us, provided for us through the cross, because of the cross. And so we'll read verses 4 through 7 again, and uh, you can follow along, and then we'll dive in here. I'll pray for us, and we'll dive in. It says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. So we've talked about that redemption that is ours because of the cross, right? And then he says, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Lord, we pray now for your help and clarity and power 
as we consider these things. May you apply them to our hearts in amazing ways. May these boys and girls uh, understand your love for them and your adoption of them in Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so sometimes people talk about all humanity, right? Everybody ever born and ever to be born. And they say, uh, you know, we're all children of God. Every last person. Uh, And in a sense, that is absolutely true. There is a sense in which every person ever born and ever to be born is a child of God in that God has made them. And God uh, cares for them. And God provides, takes care of them throughout their life. And God... uh, Uh, made them as his creation and he loves them and sent his own son to die on a cross and rise again. And so in a sense that's true that everybody ever born and ever to be born has been fashioned in their mother's womb by God. They bear God's image. Everyone and everything ultimately comes from God. Um, But I want to point out to you this morning from this text that it's not, in another sense, not everybody is automatically a child of God. But that the Bible reserves that phrase, child of God or son or daughter of God, to mean something really specific. Namely, that you have been, through your faith in Jesus Christ, been adopted into God's family. Which means that before, you weren't in God's family. Uh, Before, in your state of being unredeemed, in your state of being still dead in your sins, uh, you hadn't yet been part of that family of God. And so there is a very special sense in which God calls you and calls me children of God or sons of God or daughters of God. Uh, So look at what it says in verse 5 and 6. Remember, uh, God sent forth his son, Jesus, uh, verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our heart. And so... If a person puts their faith in Christ and he redeems them because of the cross, Paul says here, if that's true for you, then you are adopted into God's family as a son of God. And until that happens in your life, you're not just automatically God's child. Um, In fact, a little earlier in Galatians chapter 4 verse 3, he says, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Or a little further on in verses 8 and 9, he says, Formerly, that means before you trusted Christ, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that are by nature not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? Uh, So in other words, he's saying, before you're adopted as a child of God into his family, you are a child slave of the world. And you don't belong to that family of God yet. That's part of your status as unredeemed, or part of our status as being still dead in our sins. We aren't yet the child of God, but rather we might say a child of the world, and a slave of the world. In Romans 6.17, Paul says we were slaves to sin. And all this slavery language kind of teaches us, it reminds us that before we come to Christ... um, We are a slave to something. We're bound to our sinful desires and the way those things express themselves in our lives and such that uh, we aren't part of the family of God but rather part of the family of the world. And guys and gals, I want to tell you that apart from Jesus, uh, you will find that you will always be a slave to something. You'll either be a slave to your own greed or your own desire for power or your want of popularity, or you'll have, be a slave to wanting to always have the next best things, 
or to be successful or to drugs or alcohol or to violence, something is going to rise up in your life that you honor as God because you're still a child and a slave to the world system if you haven't yet been redeemed through the cross. But the incredible thing here, Paul says, is that because of the cross, God has done something about that horrible status. And we know there are two ways you can be a child of somebody, right? There are two ways you can be a child of someone. You can either be born physically to them, to that mother and father, or you might be adopted into their family. Adoption in America and throughout the world is a legal process by which somebody who's not the biological child of those, of those people is legally recognized as belonging to their family. Legally recognized in the eyes of everybody that this is now our son or our daughter. Even though he or she wasn't born to us physically. And adoption can be a really beautiful and powerful thing because it's sort of like a living illustration of what God does for you and me when we put our faith in Jesus. We don't belong to God in his family naturally because of our sin and our unredemption and our slavery to the world. But God in his love and great mercy and compassion when we put our faith in Jesus chooses to adopt us into his family and make us sons of God alongside Jesus Christ, his son, uh, his son with a capital S, uh, and, and make us part of his family. God becomes your father, your heavenly father, your spiritual father, when you put your faith in Jesus because he adopts you then out of the world system and into his family. That raises something of a, um, uh, of a tricky uh, place to come to in our understanding of God because this is said, uh, says that God sends the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Maybe you caught that in Galatians chapter 4, right? What does that mean? Well, it means, guys and gals, that God has revealed himself to us very uniquely and especially in a way that no other religion teaches. Uh, Christianity, we understand the Bible to teach that God is one God. There's only one God, right? There's, there's no, there are lots of other things that claim to be God and purport to be God and even have um, powers. You know, if we're talking about dark spiritual forces or something, they might have powers that seem to go beyond the, the natural realm. But there's only one true God, namely the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Bible. And yet the, that God has revealed himself to us through his word as one God in three persons. He exists forever as only one God, and yet he is uh, a God who is in three persons, namely God the Father, uh, who's mentioned here, right? God sent forth his Son. So God the Father, and we sometimes just call him God in, in, for shorthand, right? There's God the Father, and then there's God the Son, who, who namely is Jesus, or Jesus the Christ. Christ is just a title that means the anointed one, the king. And so uh, God sa- it says God sent forth his Son, meaning that God the Father, the first person of this trinity, sent forth uh, and caused uh, his, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, to be born as a human being. Uh, so at the same time, fully God and fully human. Um, and then there's even a third person of this one God, God the Holy Spirit. And all three are mentioned here in this verse. God uh, has sent forth his Son, 
Um, and because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We see throughout the New Testament that, and throughout the Bible that God's Holy Spirit is also God. He's worshipped as God and honored as God, and he has the rights of God. He's divine throughout the whole scriptures. And so, um, as mind-blowing as that is, and in a lot of ways we can't even um, express that probably in ways that do it full justice, uh, God has revealed himself to be one God in three persons. So when we talk about God the Father, we're talking about God, the one God. And we talk about God the Son. When we talk about Jesus, we're talking about God, the one true God. And we talk about God the Holy Spirit. We're talking about God, the one true God. Uh, all three of those persons are equal in their divinity and um, exist forever in a perfect holy unity. And so that's why when we talk about Jesus as the Son of God, he's the Son of God with a capital S, right? He's the Son of God um, in, in perfection. And you and I then, when you and I are adopted into God's family, we too become sons of God, but not in the same way, right? Not to the same degree. We don't share uh, the same sort of divinity, the same sort of deity that, that Jesus the Son has, because you and I don't become members of the Trinity. We don't become gods ourselves, but, but rather we um, are sons of God in the sense that Jesus is uh, our older brother as one who was born as a human being, lived and died and rose again. Um, and we now get to enter his family uh, by adoption. This is uh, an incredible truth. And just to help us kind of sense just how incredible it is, I want to talk just for a minute about uh, a thing called the gulag. Gulag sounds like a delicious hot dish, right? Like goulash or something like that. But uh, the gulag actually was an acrostic, G-U-L-A-G, for uh, the, the prison camp system of Soviet Russia. Uh, in the 1940s, the 1950s, into the 60s, uh, the country of Russia was, uh, was called the USSR, uh, which was broken into a, uh, a system of uh, sort of a, a communist state where um, uh, everything belonged to, to the government, to everybody, as it were, or that's how they styled it anyway. And uh, they were extremely harsh on anyone who was a dissident, anyone who went against that system of government. And especially, they had a leader named Joseph Stalin, who was sort of the supreme ruler of Soviet Russia. And he uh, was, a, was a maniac who, uh, who imprisoned um, thousands and millions of his own people in what they called the gulag, which was a system of prison camps where they sent political prisoners and common prisoners and anybody who even wrote a letter who was critical of the great leader Stalin. Um, and so it was a very different system than what most of the world enjoys today, thank God, uh, because this was a, a terrible, uh, tyrannical system of government. And, uh, and so millions of people got sent to these prison camps in the gulag system, most of them being uh, in Siberia, which you probably know, Siberia is, uh, has extremely hot summers and desperately cold winters, even colder than North Dakota sometimes. And, uh, and they would send... Uh, prisoners to these labor camps, no matter who they were, they would sometimes send uh, children as young as three years old, they would recognize as enemies of the government, enemies of the state, and would ship them off to the gulag. The minimum sentence was usually 10 years, uh, and more often than not, you got the maximum sentence of 25 years in the gulag. And that generally meant you weren't coming back. Uh, and so, in the gulag system, uh, they, they had all these camps everywhere. And of course, there were some women that were sent to the gulag as well. And uh, sometimes women would have babies while they were prisoners in that 
camp system. And when that happened, do you think that the wardens and the overseers of these prison camps would say, oh my, uh, well, this is, this is certainly no place for a mom and a child. Uh, why don't you go back to your former life? Here's some money to get back on your feet. And so sorry about all this. Go and, go and, and live your life to the best of your ability now. And, uh, and let's just forget this ever happened. <laughs> Friends, that's not, that's not what they did. That's not what they did. They sent mom back to the, back to the camp, back to, the, the, to labor. And they took the babies and the kids, all the babies and children uh, of prisoners, got put in giant collective nurseries. Uh, oftentimes just one huge room or one small room, whatever it happened to be, uh, with big cribs that housed, uh, you know, gobs and gobs of babies all at once. And then they had a, a, a few nurses who would uh, go around and sort of make sure that the kids were alive and taken care of. But otherwise, they had virtually no supervision. No, they never saw mom. They never saw dad. Uh, they were raised truly as babies of the gulag, children of the gulag, raised without a mom, without a family at all. They were truly orphans. And I wonder, can you imagine what life must have been like for those, for those kids? you imagine growing up not knowing any affectionate touch in your life, ever? you imagine only barely having enough food to eat? you imagine growing up uh, learning everything you learn about the world simply from other, uh, other prison babies? And can you imagine what a deliverance it would have been then if a fatherless and motherless orphan in the middle of Siberia had then had somebody really, really loving and somebody really, really rich come adopt you and make you your, their child. you imagine what an incredible salvation that would be? And guys and gals, that's like what happens when you put your faith in Jesus. When you become a Christian, when you repent of your sin and put on the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, you are adopted into the family of God. You are snatched out of slavery, child slavery to the world and to all its desires and to your own sinful desires and to having no hope and no future with God. You are snatched from that by the hands of a gracious father and lifted out and made instead children of the richest guy in the universe, right? Children of the most children of the being who made everything simply by the word of his power. Children of the Father who loves you with an everlasting love and nothing will ever change that. I know some of you here have complicated family situations. I'm certain of that. And I want you to be aware that if you're here and you're a follower of Christ and you've put your, put your trust in Jesus, I want you to know God knows how hard it is for you with your earthly family. And I want you to know that God cares for you deeply. And even if your earthly family isn't what it could be, or isn't what it should be, you can still belong to the family of God. And you can still have a dad who never makes mistakes, a dad who never, never mistreats you, or speaks harshly to you, or, uh, or punishes you unduly, or anything like that. You can belong to the family of God. And you can pray then that God will help your earthly family change as well for the better. And all of us, I want you to be aware. I want you to know just how uh, unbelievably um, 
gracious our, our God is as our Heavenly Father to make us His sons and daughters. And maybe you're wondering um, why that in our text here, it says, you're sons of God. It's so that we might receive adoption as sons. And then verse 6 says, because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And then verse 7 said, so you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And maybe you're wondering, uh, Ryan, what's the deal about it just saying sons here? Uh, I'm a girl, <laughs> right? Uh, why, am I, why, why does the Bible call me a son of God when I'm plainly a daughter? <laughs> is that because, you know, only boys can be saved? Or is it some weird thing like boys are more important than girls or males are more important than females? I want to assure you this morning that that is not the case at all. But that both men and women, both boys and girls, have equal value in the sight of God. And both male and female are created in the image of God. We're assured of that in the very first chapter of the Bible. And so um, don't let anybody try to convince you that, um, that somehow girls are inferior to boys or boys are less than girls or something like that. The Bible teaches that both male and female are made in the image of God and of equal value and worth before him. Uh, so that's not the case. So then why does the text say you're adopted as sons here? And the answer is because in Paul's culture, remember this is about 2,000 years ago, in his culture he grew up at a time where the dominant system of the world was the Roman Empire. And in the Roman Empire, uh, girls, females especially, were devalued. They weren't considered legally as valuable as males for whatever, you know, wacky reasons. And, um, and in that culture, in order to legally inherit your father's estate, you needed to be a son. Um, women, for the most part, couldn't inherit what their dad had when, when he died, and he passed on his inheritance to his children. Only males, only boys could be the, the heirs, the uh, inheritors of their father's estate. And so that's why Paul is careful to say, you are all son, adopted as sons of God, because he wants you to know something uh, really important Theologically, He wants you to know that you, as a son or daughter of God, adopted into God's family, you are an heir of God. In other words, everything that God has is yours. God is pleased to bless you with all things in Christ. And, and that all his riches, all his wealth, all his bounty as the Lord of the universe, uh, you enjoy as his heir whether you're a boy or a girl, whether you're a man or a woman, if you've put your faith in Jesus. And so he says sons here to make a point to the people in his culture that uh, we're not just adopted children of God, but we're children of God whom the Father is pleased to give his blessings to. Um, and so uh, I just want to um, encourage you this morning, guys, to believe the gospel and to believe in Jesus as your Savior, and enjoy that adoption into God's family. If you haven't yet done that, and we're going to keep hammering on that throughout the rest of camp. But I also want to encourage you, uh, if that's the case, if you've been adopted into God's family, then, then I want to um, encourage you to get to know God as your Heavenly Father. And to grow in your relationship and friendship with him. If you're going to get to know what he's like and to enjoy all his blessings and to live in the reality of being his son or daughter, then uh, get to know your, your God and Father by having daily fellowship with him. One of the biggest ways that we come to know anything about God, uh, we not only learn about God just by looking at creation, but we learn specifically about what God is like through what he's revealed about himself in the word, in the scriptures, in the Bible. 
And the Bible is uh, the very word of God to us that tells us what God is like. It tells us who God is and what he loves and what he hates and what his character is like and what his character isn't like. And so the primary way that you and I are going to come to know God as our Heavenly Father is if we learn more about Him from His Word, from the Bible. And I want to urge you, if you don't yet have a habit and a discipline in your life of uh, spending time reading the Bible each day, uh, that's one of the most important things you can do as a follower of Jesus and as one who's adopted into God's family. Otherwise, you'll be left to just sort of speculate about what God is like. You'll be like, wouldn't it be cool if God was like Iron Man? <laughs> or uh, wouldn't it be sweet if God was like Beyonce or something? <laughs> you know, and, and that kind of thing. And you, you'll create a God in your own image. You'll violate that second commandment, right? What we know about God comes through from our knowledge of what his world is like, but then specifically comes from what he has revealed about himself in his word. And so, guys and gals, I want to ask you to start reading the Bible every day for the rest of your life without fail. That might be five minutes. That might be an hour. I don't know what it's like. You have to figure out what works in your own life, and your own schedule. And if you don't know where to start, I would urge you to start in the, the Gospel of Mark, uh, which is just simply the, the story of Jesus' coming to earth, his life, his death, and resurrection. Uh, and then from there on, you can ask your mom or dad or your pastor or somebody who knows the Bible. Uh, you can ask them a good place to go next. Um, and, or if, you know, in personal devotion times at camp here, if you're like, do to do I'm not really into these questions here. So I'm going to play some Bible roulette and boom, you know, put down, you, you know, you can do that. That's totally fine to just pick a random place in the Bible, but it might, you might find it a frustrating experience. Start in the book of Mark, uh, and uh, that's just my suggestion anyway. You can start wherever you want, but start in the book of Mark and get to know Jesus and learn what his life and his ministry and his death and resurrection were like, and, uh, and we'll grow to love him by daily fellowship with him in his word and in prayer and in communion with other believers. As you're part of a church family, uh, I, I hope that uh, that will be important to you as you go back home uh, so that you will come to know God as he truly is in the way that he intends as uh, your heavenly father. All right, I'm going to pray for you now, and we'll see where we're going from there. God, uh, I ask for um, your hand of peace and love and uh, fatherly tenderness to come over uh, these guys and gals and over me and our counselors and everyone here, Lord, help us to truly see and understand you as a heavenly father and to know the great um, riches and benefit and blessing of being adopted into your family and being the heirs of, uh, the heirs of God and co-heirs with Jesus. And so, Lord, if there's uh, somebody here today who doesn't yet know that peace and that joy, I pray that you would move in them and reveal yourself to them. Help them see and accept and embrace Jesus as their Savior so that they might enter that great reality as well. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.